morning, everyone. Welcome. It's good to see all of you here this morning. We're starting a new sermon series today, and uh, I just want to address at the top that there is some challenge in the nature of this series that may feel a little different, especially if you're new. Uh, We are going to be spending the next couple of weeks talking about the book of Acts, the New Testament church, and one of the wrestlings of the New Testament church that still echoes and carries forth with us today, and that is the challenge of how sin expresses itself in divisiveness, prejudice, and racism. Now, for some, walking into a church, and if you're new especially, you're like, I did not know we were signing up for this today. Welcome, we're glad that you're here. We believe the church can and should have this conversation. We should do hard things together. Jesus calls us to it. Part of what I hope to do this morning is to build a foundation together to move us toward having this conversation in a way that is thoroughly Christ-centered and shaped by the scripture and really and truly shaped by the gospel. As I've been preparing for this sermon and this series, I've been thinking a lot about the people who come to our church, the people that I know well. And I would say there are probably many different groups in their perspective on racism, but let's start with two, just as kind of the broadest possible spectrum. For some, there is a strongly held belief that the church can and should talk about racism as one of the chief problems of our world, as one of the chief drivers of division, as an expression of sin that the church long has chosen to ignore. And I get that. At Bethany Community Church, we've been trying to have this conversation earnestly since 2016, if not before that. That's when our ministry of racial justice and reconciliation began in earnest. In my own journey in ministry, the church's ability to have this conversation well actually started for me when I was in college. I worshiped at a Presbyterian church that made a very bold move in the early 2000s, and it planted an intentionally multi-ethnic congregation. The church that I was a part of, not that I was on staff with in college, we hired a black pastor to come and co-pastor our predominantly white church and to help lead a church plant that was intentionally envisioned as a multi-ethnic congregation. This is in the early 2000s. I don't know of many Presbyterian churches, at least in Texas, that were having this conversation. And I don't say that to brag on myself. I say that to say there have been moments when the church has said, we do need to invest in this. We do need to have this conversation. And that's kind of one group that I know is coming to the table today. There's another group that would say, I'm just really uncomfortable that we're talking about this. I'm really uncomfortable that we're having a conversation on racism. This feels like a social issue to me. At the church that I served in Colorado, one Sunday we spent some time in prayer uh, over Trayvon Martin. Remember the Trayvon Martin shooting incident in Florida many years ago? And I had an older gentleman come up to me after the service and just say, I don't think we should be talking about that in church. I really don't. I, don't, I, I just, I don't see where that's relevant. And he and I had a longer conversation where we said, you know, it is important for us to pray for our world. And it is important for us to pray over these moments of injustice that happen. And I don't know if I changed his mind or not, but I do know that that stuck out to me as someone who is representative of a larger group of people. And I just want to say, that's okay. It's okay to be here and to not know how you feel about a church having a conversation about racism. It is okay to feel a little uncomfortable and a little unsafe. The gospel does not call us to security and to comfort. That is a myth of Western individualism. The gospel calls us to enter into the places where God is at work. And we believe as a church that we are called to enter into this. But I just want to say, whichever group you may sort of gravitate toward, you do belong in this conversation. 
You do belong in this room. You have been called here to worship today, not by the willfulness of your own heart, but by the movement of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has a plan for you, and he has a plan for me, and he has a plan for us. As we enter into these next couple of weeks, I just want to mention at the top, my door is open. Those of you who know me well know I want to talk. I want to have the conversation. I want to help you walk through this as your pastor. There's an incredible group of leaders who I just want to thank who've been leading in our uh, Ministry of Racial Justice team for a long time. And I want to thank you guys for your investment and your prayer over this time. I also want to thank all of uh, those folks who have joined up with Bethany who are coming from communities of color. Bethany's been a predominantly white church for most of our 100-plus year history. That is starting to change as we do better, I would say, reflecting the diversity of the communities to which we belong. But for my brothers and sisters of color, for those of you who've chosen to walk beside Bethany in this season, I just want to say thank you, and I hope you'll keep it up. I hope that this sermon series and the subsequent ministry opportunities really encourage all of us to continue on this journey together. So how are we going to tackle this today? We are not going to solve racism this morning. We are going to begin a conversation. We are going to talk about the scriptures and the gospel and how it goes into our lives. We'll get back to that definition in just a moment. Here's your outline. This is where we're going to go. We're going to talk about the challenge we all face, why racism is antithetical to the gospel, the process of restoration, and next steps. The challenge we face, why racism is antithetical to the gospel, the process of restoration, and next steps. Let's begin by talking about the problem we all face. Racism is real. It is not a concept. It is not an idea. It is real. It plays out in your life and in my life. Let's talk about how we define this. Our MRJR team, Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation, landed on this definition several years ago. They're led by our, our wonderful director of racial justice, Taylor Greer. The definition goes like this. Racism is a person or group's negative or harmful beliefs, words, and or actions toward another person or group because of the person or group's race. This is what we are talking about when we talk about racism. There's a lot of different ways to define racism. I like this definition because it's clear and because it kind of stays within some boundaries that I think are helpful for us. We need to be thinking about this in terms of real lives and real people. This is not a sociology lecture. This is not a college course. This is us as the church trying to figure out how has God faithfully called us to enter into this. Now, you and I can probably think of some big-ticket examples of racism. Think back to your high school history class. Think back to middle school history and social studies. You learned about the institution of slavery, upon which much of our country and most of our economy was based for a long, long time. You might remember something called the Three-Fifths Compromise from 1787, the Constitutional Congress, decided that black people were worth three-fifths the value of a white person for taxation purposes. I mentioned those examples, and there are dozens and dozens more I can mention, but those aren't just examples of a one-time thing. They're representative of something that is much more broken and much more fundamentally problematic written throughout American history. Think about it this way. If you learned a pattern growing up in your family, and then you get married, and you learn the patterns of the other person, and you kind of go, where did that come from? You actually are learning a little bit what I hope we have learned and will continue to bring to bear about racism. There are just things that we learn that are hard to get off of our backs. And as a country, we have learned Western individualism, 
And we have learned that there are some things that are predicated on race and racism in our country. In the Pacific Northwest, Lewis and Clark did not just show up to this beautiful territory that was uninhabited. They took this land. The settlers took this land from the native tribes who had lived here for a long, long time. Manifest destiny meant that certain groups of people lost and certain groups of people won, and that is an expression of how the sin of racism digs down deep into every aspect of our lives. And I just want to personalize this a little bit. I can think of many instances from my life growing up, and I bet you can too, where there was something you observed or even something that you took part in that was based on racist assumptions. It was based on assumptions that one group of people was better than another group of people. Where I grew up in Houston, there's a freeway that cuts through the city called I-10, and the north side of I-10 was kind of known as a neighborhood where people of color lived. And that neighborhood was poor, the schools weren't as strong, the streets weren't as well taken care of. There was a physical representation on the north side of I-10 that you were in a different part of the city than the white part of the city, the south side of I-10 where I grew up. Seattle has a similar thing. Do you know why Lake City Way, there's so many apartment buildings and complexes around there? Because that part of the city was redlined. Redlining was simply a property code that said, these buildings over here are for people of color, and we're going to leave the better areas for the white people. There's physical examples of racist assumptions all around us. And let's not just leave it at the city. Every one of us has had some kind of experience where we have been treated unfairly because of race, because assumptions have been made of us about race. As I've gotten to be friends with a whole group of black pastors through our friendship with Paradise Baptist Church, I have learned a whole lot of things about how black pastors minister in the world. Most of them are tent makers. They work full-time jobs and they pastor, which one is enough for me. <laughs> That's amazing. Most of them have not been to seminary. But as I learned to lean into these relationships with these pastors, I learned that I was making a lot of assumptions about them that were based on my racial understanding of pastoral leadership. Most white pastors, most you know, seminarians, that kind of thing, we kind of bring our assumptions into those relationships. And my friends in the black community have really helped me see that differently. I say all of this to say, every one of us has some kind of a challenge when it comes to this conversation. And this is the problem that we're facing. And the problem is not just there have been racist laws that have been written. The problem is sin. This is where the church's angle and perspective on it needs to be different than the way that the world talks about it. The way the world talks about racism in schools and the way that the world talks about racism in social media or the way your company has started to talk about racism, those are all important steps. But there is a uniqueness to what the church is going to bear witness to that has everything to do with the gospel as we talk about the importance of addressing racism. Here's one of my foundational kind of approaches when I think about race and racism. It's a theological concept called the Imago Dei. Now we're talking about why racism is antithetical to the gospel. This is from Genesis 1, the creation account, so we're going all the way back to the beginning, and it goes like this. Then God said, let us make humans in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The image of God, the Imago Dei, is a theological concept that helps us understand why racism is not okay. Here are some principles of the Imago Dei. 
It's a Latin term that simply means image of God, and here's kind of the the, uh, outline. Human beings uniquely bear the image of God. We heard that in the scripture. God didn't say to the mountains, you bear my image. He didn't say to the rabbit, you bear my image. He said to people, you bear my image. And that's a unique gift. It is an incredible gift. It is an incredible calling and responsibility for humanity. And so when you meet somebody, you ref- that person reflects God's image to you, and you reflect God's image to them. It's one of the reasons relationships are so vital and so important in the life of faith. We have to be able to see the image of God in one another. But there is a uniqueness in how God expresses this. Every single human being is imbued with inherent dignity because of God's gift of his image. This is where the rubber meets the road. Think about the person that you absolutely cannot stand their political perspective. Think about the talking head on the cable news network that you would not be caught dead watching. Think about your cousin that just rampantly posts things on social media where you go, oh gosh, would you please take a break? Guess what? Your cousin, the talking head, whoever it is that you just pictured in your mind, they are imbued with inherent dignity because of God's gift of his image. You don't get to say that person is worthless. Followers of Jesus Christ don't believe that. We believe that every human being has inherent value. Doesn't mean we have to agree with them. Doesn't mean we have to even like them necessarily as a person or what they present, but that there is an inherent dignity and value to human beings. And that anything that degrades the value of a human being is antithetical to the gospel. It can't work. In other words, the Imago Dei, it can't be broken or taken away. You can't have the image of God ripped away from you. You can't have surgery or all the things to change your appearance in such a way where you lose the image of God, but it can be obscured. If you've ever been through addiction or walked with someone who is really consumed by drugs, by alcohol, by process addiction like pornography. You have seen the physical toll it takes on someone. If you're addicted to heroin, your body shows it in your arms, in the lost weight, in the sores, in the parts of you that start to fall apart. The image of God is being degraded in addiction. It is not destroyed, but it is degraded. Racism is like an addiction. It rejects and obscures the image of God in other people. It says, that person over there is only worth three-fifths of what I'm worth because of their skin color. That's why the three-fifths compromise wasn't good. That's why it's antithetical to the gospel. It's why racism and racist things that continue to perpetuate racism are a problem, and we need to address them. This is where it drills down into the heart. This is not just good politics. This is good theology. This is the way God made us that he wants us to reflect and recognize that every person has dignity and value. And the things that break that down break God's heart. One of the reasons the approach we're taking in this sermon series is just different than the way that the world is gonna approach racism is because the end goal is different. Look at the front of your bulletin. What's the title for this sermon series, that first word? Say it with me. Restoration. Say it with me, church. Restoration. We're not about writing new laws. 
We're not about voting in a particular way. We are about the restoration of all things. And God made us to go deeper than just the surface level of addressing racism. Here's the way that uh, the dictionary.com defines restoration. A return of something to a former, original, normal, or unimpaired condition. Restitution of something taken away or lost. Think about the TV shows. Fixer Upper, anything on HGTV. Actually, I think all of HGTV is Fixer Upper now. Like, I don't think they have other programming. This is what you watch when they restore the house. But let's be honest. When a house is restored, oftentimes it's kind of surfacy. It's a fresh cone of paint and some new countertops. The bones of the house have not been worked on. The roof is left neglected. There are things that are untouched. The way the gospel calls us to enter into restoration is different than rebuilding a home. It is at the heart level. And no one exemplifies this more than the Apostle Paul. This is Caravaggio's painting of Paul being thrown from his horse on the road to Damascus. It looks like it's a painting about a horse, but it's not. There's Paul, one of the great leaders of the church, thrown down from his horse. You remember this story maybe from Acts chapter 9. I won't read it for us, but I'll summarize it. The Apostle Paul, known as Saul at the time, was a zealot. He was a religious fanatic. I would even argue that Paul's violence toward others wasn't just motivated by religion. Remember, he's a Jew. He is not just persecuting people who don't see God and see faith the same way he does. He's persecuting the Gentiles, which he saw as a completely different racial ethnic group. We see Paul kind of bounce in and out of the story of Acts for a little while. Remember, he's at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He's holding the cloaks of the men who killed Stephen. He's an accessory to murder. And then in Acts chapter 9, we meet Saul. He's riding on his horse. He is the picture of power. I think that's why Caravaggio focused on the horse so much as the focal point, because that was a representation of his power. And he's ready to go keep committing violence that is religiously and racially motivated. He's just going to keep rolling until he eliminates everyone connected to Jesus. And Saul's thrown to the ground by the power of God. God speaks to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? And he's there on the ground. He's helpless, his arms are stretched out here, his weapons are to the side, his fancy robe that he was wearing to show how powerful he was, it's in the dirt. And God does all of this because he wants something more for Paul. He wants something more for Saul. Saul didn't just need a new name. He didn't just need to get off his horse. He needed a new way of life. He needed to let go of his racism and his prejudice. He needed to change. But friends, this is where I want to offer just a pastoral word of encouragement. As we think about racism, as we sit with the realities of what we're going to touch on in this sermon series, recognize that we are in a process. We are in a process of understanding how the gospel animates us toward addressing prejudice, injustice, and racism and divisions in our world. We are in a process. I don't expect any of us to walk out of here today and have a perfect vision for what's ahead or to perfectly name our own struggles with racism. No, 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 no. I want us to take steps. So what steps did the Apostle Paul have to take? Phew, well, geez. First, he had to get up off the ground, but he was blind, remember? 
And so one of the very people he was persecuting had to come beside him. He needed a community. Friends, as we take this journey together through this sermon series, you will need a community around you, and I will too. And that's part of why our time in discussion, that's part of why our time in small groups is going to be so valuable. Paul had to walk through a process. Immediately, he had to go to someone else's home to care for him. He couldn't see, he couldn't take care of himself. He was as helpless as the day is long. And then over time, his sight came back. Over time, he began to live into this new name that God gave to him. He was baptized, he was brought into the community of faith over time, through a process. And the Holy Spirit was in charge of that. Whatever process God is unfolding for you and for me during this sermon series, he is in charge of it. He is. Don't work yourself into a lather if you don't feel like you've done enough to address racism. Don't work yourself into a lather if you feel like this is just going to be the end of you to keep hearing these messages. Be patient with God's process in your life. Eventually, Paul goes on to do some of the most amazing ministry in the New Testament. He goes all around the Roman Empire, and he starts to see that the believers of the way, the followers of Jesus, they're not just one group of people. They're a huge group of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We'll talk about this next week when we talk about Pentecost. God called all people to himself to be the church, not just one group of people. And Paul learns, and he ministers, and he cares for people, and he prays for people, and he goes to jail, and he gets out of jail, and then he gets shipwrecked. He's on a huge journey. It's all part of God's process for him. And then eventually, eventually, the same man who killed Christians, who persecuted people because of their faith and their race, writes these beautiful words in Romans 15. He sends this to a multi-ethnic church in the city of Rome. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Who is this guy? That's not the same guy that got knocked off his horse. That's not the same religious zealot. This person's different. This is like a member of the Ku Klux Klan taking off their robe, taking off their pointy hat, and welcoming people in Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Did that happen because Paul said, gosh, you know, there's some laws about racism. I should listen to those laws. I'm breaking the rules about racism. No, because the gospel got into his heart because he recognized that the people around him were made in the image of God. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the Pentateuch. He knew the scriptures. He knew how God made human beings. And God had to change his heart. What happened to Saul is restoration. Took a long time. Cost him everything. Wasn't perfect. But God changed and he can change you, and he can change our world. So again, let me go back to the dichotomy I mentioned a moment ago as I've been thinking about who we are and how we're coming into this. If you are very much committed to the work of racial justice and reconciliation, thank you. Where does the gospel need to touch your heart just a bit more deeply? Where do you need more of that motivation from the Holy Spirit, not from whatever political party you ascribe to, not from whatever cultural notes you might want to pick up on, that's all fine and good, 
But my challenge to that group is to say, where is the gospel in your motivation? And to the group of us that may feel really uncomfortable with this, you can't wait to book it out of here once I shut up. Like, you're like, all right, let's go. I'm done listening to this guy. Let me just offer you this word of encouragement. Lean into that resistance. Ask God for help. This is not, I heard, I heard a sermon and now I'm different thing. Far be it. I, I would never be so arrogant as to assume that this one message is going to do all that work. God can do that work. And if you're experiencing that discomfort, well, welcome. We're glad you're here. We want to lean in with you. And to that end, we want to give everyone the opportunity to take this work to a next step. How do we put all this together? What's our next step here? There's two encouragements I want to offer you. First, on your way out today, there's a resource table with a whole bunch of different options for you to consider. There's an article from Timothy Keller that I found really helpful. There's a stack of books that are just some of the ones that I turn to as I think about this subject. There are many more, and you'll see different books and resources in the weeks to come. I would just encourage you, pick one up or grab one of the handouts. There are also some journals out there that have this wonderful artwork on it that our communications team built for our church to use. Grab one of these. It has scriptures. It has questions for reflection. It has opportunities for you to take this consideration around racism into your life. You may have seen this handout in your bulletin as well. There are ministry opportunities coming up that are so good and so valuable and will probably be a little uncomfortable. But I would encourage all of you, take a look at this handout, look at one of these opportunities, and just find one that you can get your arms around. Maybe you need to join in uh, with the Lamenting Racism series. Maybe you need to pick up a copy of the Subversive Witness book. That's, that author is going to be a speaker for us in November. Look at the ways that you can put your heart and mind around this. And know that there are just so many opportunities to do it. And we'd love for you to be able to do that. The encouragement I want to offer in closing is this. Sometimes when we are on this journey, where we are following Jesus Christ and seeking him out, there are going to be things presented to us that are a little bit uncomfortable, that challenge us. And my encouragement, as we get ready to go into a time where we can talk to each other about this weighty subject, about the call to restoration, is to lean into that. And here's why. I have a friend uh, younger than me who I was talking to recently who uh, shared something very difficult. He and his wife, no kids yet, his wife uh, came to him one day and said, hey, I've got some really hard news to tell you. I have breast cancer. Just like that, out of the blue. And for those of you that have walked with people through cancer, you know it can happen just like that. And my friend was just shocked and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. They started to talk, and he said, how did you know that you had cancer? How did you discover this? And she said, well, you know, you remember in high school health class, they tell you to do a self-examination from time to time. Remember this? So for women, you need to be doing a self-examination and feeling for any sort of lumps or irregularities. For men, there's an equivalent for testicular or prostate cancer. I'm not getting into the gory details, but I'm just saying that self-examination saved her life because she checked, because she looked. She went, you know, that doesn't feel right. I should go talk to my doctor about this. I need help. I can't figure this out on my own. I need to go. 
Take the opportunity when we go into these discussion groups, when you have time to reflect and journal on your own, think of it as a self-examination. Cancer is just like sin. Sin is just like cancer. I would hate for us to move forward as a church and not be aware of some sin that's eaten us up. And the sin you may discover in these conversations, it very well may be related to race and racism. It may not. It may be something that you've been holding back from the Lord. It may be a pain point adjacent to racism and injustice. It may be something else. Don't miss the opportunity for a thorough self-examination. The courageous people in Alcoholics Anonymous commit to a ruthless moral inventory. And that's part of the reason that program has been so successful in changing people's lives. Would you consider this time that we enter into now as an opportunity for self-examination? Would you consider the opportunity to go through this sermon series and to have a dinner table conversation with your spouse after the kids go to bed and say, hey, remember Travis was talking about that self-examination thing? I think I want to talk about something I observed or a part of my past that deals with race and racial history. The Holy Spirit has brought you here, church. The Holy Spirit's at work in you and is at work in me. Now's our opportunity to look carefully at our own hearts. If you're new here, I just want to say we're really glad you're here, and it may feel a little strange to turn and discuss a heavy subject with people that you don't know well. I understand that. We do hope that you'll enter into these conversations, or at the very least that you'll be able to listen and hear other people have a dialogue, and that you'll be able to take away something from it that really encourages your faith. So in just a moment, I'll pray for us, and we have some leaders who have been praying over you and praying over this time of conversation, and they're going to kind of lead each of these different groups in our discussion time. We'll have about uh, 15 minutes to do this. I'll keep an eye on our time. And I want to offer this time up in prayer to the Lord for a time of self-reflection and self-examination. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for the chance to look at the scriptures. Thank you for the goodness of the gospel, that our reliance on the law, our reliance on our own performance, our own behavior, it's just not going to bring us to where you want us to be. We will come up short when we rely on ourselves. Instead, help us to rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to look to the example of Saul, who became Paul. Maybe that's the kind of transformation you have for us and for our church as we seek to address these huge problems in our world. However you want to lead us forward, Lord, use this time. Use our words, use our hearts. Gather us to yourself. Bless this time now. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So here's the question for consideration. The definition of restoration, the process by which God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, calls his people to join Jesus in the work of making all things new. That's our operating definition today. Based on this definition... Where do you long to see restoration, either in your own life or in our world? So when you go to your groups, introduce yourselves and take some time and ponder this question together. You're now dismissed to your groups. I'll call us back together in a few minutes.